0: very much, Kevin. I uh, very much appreciate that, Kevin. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Um, great to see you here in person, and also we welcome those uh, watching online. Thank you for joining us online as well. You've met us in part two of a series we're calling Stronger, an invitation really to see and find a God of strength in the middle of the space that we're living in right now. And today, of all days, is a very special day for me. And so whether you like it or not, you get to join in a celebration today for me. Guess what today is for me? My anniversary, that's right. Yeah, one of you knew that. So 23 years ago, 23 years ago, before this little stage was here, there was a bride that walked down the aisle when we had pews in this space. And, uh, I mean, we got married 23 years ago today. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. All right, thank you. That's all I had to say this morning. Thank you for coming to Grace Point Church. We are just, dis- no, we're not this But hey, over the years, over 23 years of marriage, I have learned quite a few things about myself. Um, And any of you who have been married or who have been in a significant relationship, you know that relationships have that um, edge to them where they help you see things about you that are true that otherwise you simply wouldn't see. Isn't that true? It's both a gift and not sometimes, (laughs) but it's good Uh, for me. Uh, the marriage, my marriage with Jen has been amazing. I, mean, I love being married to Jen. Um, 23 years has been awesome. It's been full of um, great times and challenging times, um, like I think any of your stories would be as well. But a couple things I've learned about myself along the way is we, we hear the phrase love hurts, right, and truth hurts, and both are true in, in relationships. Um, I remember when our kids were very young, uh, my cards on the table uh, and I like to sleep, right? Like, I like, I never in college could do all-nighters. It didn't work for me. And so I, I love sleep. And so when the kids would cry in the middle of the night, especially our oldest when we were first getting into the parenting thing, I remember nights where I would lay there and I would pretend to sleep hoping that Jen would hear our oldest and before I would have to get out of bed, right? Anyone ever do that? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but here's here's the reality. And so the here, the truth is, the the truth is, In that moment, here's what I told myself when I'm laying there. I'm like, oh, I go to work tomorrow, or I go to school, and she gets to be at home, and she can take a nap if she wants to. I don't have that luxury. Therefore, let me just lay here a little bit longer. Yep, she's up and gone. Uh, Hey, did it go okay last night? But there were times where I intentionally was like, so the the truth is, what I wanted needed to confront myself with, and, and marriage confronts me with this all the time, is that I am selfish. That's the truth. In that moment, I completely ran away from the vows that I made to her in this space 23 years ago. I'm like, yeah, for better or for worse, or if the kids get up, you're on your own on that part, all right? The truth is, and truth hurts, love hurts. The truth is, in that moment, I'm selfish. I don't like it, but I need to hear it, right? The truth is, I also love to um, give love the way I receive it. Like, I like uh, physical touch and time spent. Jen is um, gifts and acts of service. I don't know what's wrong with her. I've been trying for years to change that. Um, It hasn't worked out. And and so the truth is I, I like to give the way I like to receive, but that's not love. That's manipulation. So the truth is, again, there are seasons and moments in my marriage where I look at what I'm learning about myself and realizing that the truth is a gift to sharpen and shape me, but I don't like what truth sometimes tells me. Now, Here's why I bring all this up, because I think that we need this space right here. We're going we're gonna to find a moment in just a minute when we open the scriptures together, where the truth and love can hurt but shape in a helpful way. So even if you're not married this morning, or even if your marriage is in a different place, or you had been married and you're no longer married, or forget marriage for a minute, just relationships with people, you know and I know that we don't always love to traffic in truth. We don't mind softening things so that we can make it easier on ourselves. So for example, this week, I don't know, let's just say this week I didn't exercise. I don't know, maybe I did one time. I can get to the end of a week and be like, well, it's just because I was so busy. But the truth is I need to be honest with myself and I just don't care enough this week. That's the truth. I didn't prioritize it. If you ask to have lunch with me and I'm like, hey, we'll get to that sometime, then I'll say, hey, we didn't have time. But no, the truth is I didn't prioritize it. That's what's true. If I need to have a hard conversation with you, and and I put it off and put it off and put it off, the truth is I'm afraid of you and what you'll think of me. That's the truth. I might just say it's busy and busy. You know, the truth is different, and the truth shapes us. And so this morning, what I want to talk about and take us to in the scriptures is is a moment where this young man at the time, this guy named Nehemiah, He engaged with something that was true. He introduced us to a tool that can help us both learn to love better and engage in truth better. It's a tool that I don't like because it forces me to live in truth, and I would rather soften it, rationalize it. I don't like to face my own selfishness. I don't like to face my own pride. I don't like to face the embarrassing and shameful parts of my present and my past. But this tool invites us to say, come look and live in truth so that your relationships with God and people can be in a stronger way. Place than they are right now. And so to look at that tool with me, I want to invite you to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter one. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, no problem. There's a Bible in the chairs near you there. That's our gift to you. Uh, Nehemiah, the best way to find that is by going kind of to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, Then you can back up a couple chapters, and you can find our friend Nehemiah. We are here for an 11-week journey through Nehemiah. We're just in chapter 1. We're going to look at just three verses this morning, and the first verse we're going to look at is verse 5 of chapter 1. For some brief context, last week we saw that Nehemiah began to hear some news about his city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in ruins And it really shook him to the core. And he was like, man, this isn't good. He wept and cried before God for days. He fasted. And now finally, we're entering a space where after days of fasting, he's going to come before God in prayer. And the opening part of his prayer, this is what is so instructive and helpful to me, to see a tool that he uses that I think can help each of us in our relationship with God and with each other. So verse 5 first, he says, Then I said... Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let me pause right there in the first verse. As Nehemiah enters this prayer, he's appealing to God, this great and awesome God, he says. In some places, that's translated as like an awe-inspiring God, someone who is just um, above and beyond what we can think and even imagine. And then he says, who keeps his covenant of love. With those who love him and obey his commandments in the old testament when nehemiah was writing this there was a couple of covenants that were active and in play one was the abrahamic covenant and one was the mosaic covenant both of those covenants essentially have conditions put on them and it's different than the covenant that the new testament church is under it's different than the covenant that if you're a christian today that you are under in the old testament particularly in the mosaic covenant A covenant with God would mean that if I obey, God blesses me, and if I disobey, God curses. That's essentially the framework for the Mosaic covenant, which is why when Nehemiah writes, he says, you keep your covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. See, he's putting out, here are the conditions. God, you love when people love you and when they keep your commandments. Now, conversely... It could also then be said that Nehemiah could have said that you don't keep your covenant for those who don't love you and don't obey. Now, if you're anything like me, I tend to import this idea into the New Testament church. I tend to import this Old Testament idea into my faith today. And I live like this sometimes. I often live like God will be more loving to me if I am more loving to others and if I'm more obedient to his commands. When I do that, I'm living under the Mosaic covenant of old times. I am not living under the new covenant. The new covenant, Jesus was very clear about in the New Testament. He said, a new command, new covenant, I give to you. Love one another. The mark of the new covenant is that the unconditional love of God through Christ, regardless of our obedience to him. And so as Nehemiah comes to God, he's like... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. As you read that and listen to that and engage with that in your faith today, I just want to encourage you, as you pray and engage with God, to know that his covenant of love no longer requires, if you will, love and obedience for his favor. But all of that was found complete in the person of Christ when he died on the cross for you and for me. That all of the requirements of satisfaction of the law were met when Christ came and died for your sin and for my sin. So that now we have the benefit of the righteousness of Christ being put on you and put on me in the way that we come before our Heavenly Father. And so when Nehemiah comes and says, you're going to keep your covenant of love today now, I say, man, this is ridiculously amazing that he keeps his covenant of love, regardless of whether I obey or how loving I am to you. That is crazy. Well, Nehemiah goes on. He says in verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I'm going to pause it here because so far, I'm not offended by anything that Nehemiah is doing. It's a beautiful way to put it. He's asking God's ear to be attentive and eyes open to hear the prayer he's praying. Day and night, clearly Nehemiah is coming before God with great regularity and passion. What happens next, the next two words is where I begin to have a problem. And the next two words may be where you begin to have a problem, or at least a reaction. Because here's what he says next, at least in the NIV. He says, I confess. I, singularly, I confess And then he goes on, I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We, he says, have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He plunks this right in the middle of his prayer, actually right at the beginning, a personal confession. He's saying, I want to come before you and I want to confess what we have done. I want to confess the corporate sin of my nation. I want to confess the corporate sin of our people. I want to confess my father's sin, my father's household sin. I want to confess the sin of the people around me. I just want to confess everybody's sin. And I want to sit with that. Now, I will be honest, I don't know of many more um, activities or any more things that... (laughs) Any more values that are more offended in a Western individualistic world than the idea of corporate responsibility for individual problems. Meaning, no kid on the school bus, when they drive into the school and they've had a bad bus ride because two or three kids have been bad. No one likes when the teacher or the principal gets on that bus and everybody gets in trouble because of those two or three bad kids, right? Who loves that? And then, as a secretary, you get a call in the office from all the parents of all the innocent kids all day long, like, well, my kid had nothing to do with blah, 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 because I don't like to be drawn into corporate sin and guilt, do I? Nor do you. You don't like to have recess taken away because those two kids in the back kept talking, but you didn't do anything, right? So the very individualistic world in which I live in which you live is now affronted with Nehemiah's prayer saying, I want to confess to you, God. And I want to place myself in a position where I'm going to say, we need confession. It is an affront to westernized Christianity. It's an affront to individualistic reality. A couple weeks ago, some of you were at a true-fault seminar that had the benefit and privilege of team teaching with Scott Feather from Gateway Church just down the road. And in that seminar, we talked about a number of things. We shared a number of data points about um, Christians and evangelicals in our world today. And we got the feedback there, and we got it in a preview seminar we did before that, and I got it in a pre-preview seminar. Every time I talk about data, here's the pushback I get. Well, that may be true for some Christians, but not for me. In other words, if I give you a stat, if I give you a stat that says, um, you know, let me just make one up right now, that 50% of Christians their marriages end in divorce. I don't know if that's true. I'm just going to make that up. And you may say, well, that may be true for some Christians, but not true for me. You might be right. But then what you'll do is you'll push back away from that and think, I don't even belong to that. Therefore, I'm not going to listen or pay attention to that. And in that seminar, when I was talking about the church and evangelicals and data around that, what I heard pushback in that group was, but that's not me. That 30% may be true, but that's not me. 27% of that may be true, but that's not me. 40%, that might be true, but that's not me. I don't associate with, therefore, I'm not responsible for, therefore, I don't need to care about, therefore, 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 I don't relate. Therefore, I, in a Western individualistic world, don't need to respond. I get it. I get it. To which, ironically, and here was the gift of one person in the room who was not a Christ follower... At one of our moments, she said this. She said, Christians, if you want to think that's not you, go ahead. But I just want to tell you from outside of faith, that's you. It was such a gift for us to hear that corrective. And Nehemiah steps into this space, and here's why we don't like this. Because here's what we often think about confession. We think this, that confession is, we often think, I want to tell you that it's not. Confession actually isn't about admitting I'm wrong our misconception about confession is like, I don't want to admit I'm wrong for something I didn't do. Right? Like, I don't want to admit that I was wrong about something my grandparents did or my parents did. Confession isn't about admitting I'm wrong. I want to reframe it for you. Confession isn't about admitting I'm wrong. Not fundamentally. Sometimes there's a part of it. Confession is actually about admitting what's true. And those are two very different things. Confession isn't about admitting I'm wrong as much as it's about admitting what is true. Confession is this moment where I step into this space and say, God, as Nehemiah did, there is a truth that you want obedience. I want to confess that my family has not been obedient. I want to look back on this prayer. We have committed against you. We are wicked toward you. We didn't obey the commands. I want to acknowledge to you a truth that we haven't done what we should do. I want to acknowledge there's an ideal that you have for this world that we have not kept our end of the deal on. I want to acknowledge a truth. I'm not necessarily admitting that I am wrong in every aspect of that, but confession is about what is true. And we actually use this word in this way in our own world all the time. Well, you would imagine... If you're having a a party and watching a sports event on TV, everyone in the room, 10 people in the room, nine of them are cheering for one team. One person in the room is quiet and kind of pulled back, a little more reserved. And finally, someone's like, are you cheering for the other guys? They may or may not put it this way, but what they could easily say is, "Ah, all right, I confess I am. I confess I am. Now, they're not admitting they're wrong. They're just admitting what is true. They're using confess in that way, just like we have a confession of faith as a church. This is our way of confessing or saying, this is what is true. Just like in a court of law, we have witnesses who stand up and say, here's my confession of what happened, a written confession, and sign it. They're not admitting they're wrong, they're just admitting what is true. And so when we think of confession this way, it changes the way that we see our world, and it's a tool all of a sudden to consider using. The reason that this matters, the reason that this matters, is because we don't like to traffic in confession. Because none of us like to wake up every day and be reminded of all the ways that we have sinned or have failed. None of us like to wake up and be like, "Oh, I am so low. I'm such a failure. I've fallen here. I've da da da. I confess. I confess. I confess. I must not. I'm blah blah." As if confession automatically draws you down to admit constantly what is wrong. Confession isn't that confession is a is a framing up of what is true and in that space now I can reflect my life against God's ideals for my world my relationships and him and then I begin to see what is really going on what confession does for me two things it helps me my relationship with God it casts vision for what can be but secondly and this is where I think it's so important in our world today It helps me in my relationships with others. I want you to go back to Nehemiah's prayer for a minute because I want you to think about how is it that confession helps me in my relationship with other people? Look at Nehemiah's confession again. I'm going to read it. He says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, Do you think that Nehemiah would agree philosophically with every other Israelite who is in the nation of Israel? Do you think that there wouldn't be people who are critical of Nehemiah, who Nehemiah would think we should have gone this way, and they think we should have gone this way? Do you think there are people even within his own family who don't like when he comes to the dinner table? Do you think there's conflict and tension within relationships, within Nehemiah's world? I can't imagine a world where Nehemiah is in agreement with absolutely everybody. Here's what confession allows us to do. Confession, I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it, so I'm going to share it with you up here. Here's what he says about confession. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ? Meaning, when when you fail and when I fail, when I don't do what you want me to do and you don't do what I want you to do, when we diverge, When you think we should have gone here, and we went there, and we went here, and there, and you did this, and blah, 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 and we find points of disagreement because of sin or misunderstanding, and it becomes a burden on our relationships. You wish it was different. It hurts you, and we feel the weight of that, like, man, that's disappointing. That's hard. Maybe it's a sin issue, maybe it's a misunderstanding, but you feel the communal weight of that. What Bonhoeffer is saying is when sin and misunderstanding burden our community, is not the sinning brother still a brother? Is not the person that you don't like and whose opinion you'd very much disagree with still a brother with whom we together stand under the word of Christ? Then he goes on. He puts it this way. Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. It may not not the moment where you have misaligned my name or where I have done something against your values, that in those moments where you diverge from me and I diverge from you, is it not in that moment, in the anger you feel, in the disappointment that you feel relationally, is it not that moment, Bonhoeffer writes, where it is a constant occasion to stop and say, ooh, I can give thanks that I can give thanks, that together we can live, together we can live in the forgiving love of God in Christ. And he finishes it this way. Here's what he says. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother, the moment when you are most disillusioned with me and maybe me with you, becomes incomparably beneficial because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed that really binds us together, and that is the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Like, is it not that moment where I most diverge from you and I think, man, what is wrong with these people? Why do they think and act and behave and move? Who would ever? What's wrong with, if only they? Is it not in those moments of divergence where confession says, oh, what a beneficial gift it is to say, God, together we have failed to live up to your ideals, including my brother and sister who I disagree with, including the one who has hurt me and set all kinds of evil against me, including the one who I wish would have lived life very differently, including even them, are they not still a brother and does not confession, put me next to you and you next to me, and bind relationships under the word of Christ? To say that together, this is the truth, the truth of a world where God has created where we are and longs for us to live in harmony and love and peace with one another in relationship with him. This is the gift of confession, the framing up of truth, not just the admission of wrong. And so when Nehemiah comes before God and says, I confess what we have done, it is not as if he is saying, I personally have been responsible for all the actions of all my predecessors. I personally have acted in all the evil ways. I personally, he's not saying that. He's acknowledging what is true, God, is that you don't want any of us to act in wicked ways. What is true, God, is that you don't want any of us to align, misalign one another's names. You don't want any of us to attack each other. And to the degree that I am guilty of that, I want to acknowledge that. And I want to stand with my brother, who maybe already right now has offended me and I have offended him, but together we stand under the truth of the world that you have created. And I confess that we, we have fallen short. Confession is a tool that frames up truth that allows us to live in depth of relationship with one another. For me, here's what I've done. And I want to encourage you in a minute to think about this. I'm going to encourage you in a second to think about your own confession and the role of confession in your own life. In fact, I want to ask this question right now. I'm just going to move right into this. And that is this, what part does confession play in your own life? If I can ask that to you, don't need to answer out loud, of course, right now. But I want you to think about this question: What part or role does confession play in your life? I would argue for you that confession actually does play a role, whether you use that term or not. If you've ever done goal setting, you've confessed that which you want to be true versus that which you want to eliminate. If you've ever been someone who stepped on a scale and not been happy with what you've seen said no i want to do something different about that and you're confessing not the sin of overeating but you're confessing and framing up a truth that you want to be true now what role does confession play in your spiritual life and how you relate to god and how we relate to one another and here's what i did and i want to encourage you to consider something like this it doesn't need to be this long but I've written out for me because I needed to see how this works. I've written out a confession to try to bring this to bear because I will be honest, most of my life I have conceived of confession as primarily an admission of wrong and guilt and shame. And I don't like to traffic in that area, and you probably don't either. But confession is really about the truth and creating, framing up the truth. That's what Nehemiah has done. and So I wrote this. You don't need to write this. You can do your own. But just for example, I I wrote this. I said, I confess, God, that you have made this world and all that's in it. I confess that you have sent your son to die on the cross for our salvation. I confess that you are a loving God inviting us to an unconditional covenant of love with you. I confess that we, that you have called us, excuse me, you've called us to love one another with an unconditional love. I confess that there are times that that I have failed and we have failed to love our neighbor unconditionally, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. I confess that I have and we have blind spots in our lives that keep us from seeing where we miss the mark. I confess that I need, that we need your help to live and serve and model your love to this world today. So what am I saying? I'm speaking the truth of how I think God has made this world. How I think the role of Christ in coming for our salvation changes the way I live. And I'm admitting some measure of fault for intentional or unintentional actions. And what confession does is it does two things. It softens my heart and it raises my vision. It softens my heart because it says, Tim, there may be ways just like in my marriage, that you walk into that marriage thinking it's going to be awesome, but you actually learn truth. And so soften your heart a little bit by the brother who is different from you, the one who disagrees and thinks things should be done differently, that they are under and stand alongside of you in confession. Together we, together we, have failed to live up to God's ideals. Maybe your story is different than mine, but together, my friends, we have failed. However, We are under the unconditional love of God. And so I want to ask you this final question. I want to kind of invite you to this space. That is this. I want to invite you this week. I want to invite you to to join me in starting your days with confession this week. I want to invite you to consider doing this in a very practical way, in just writing out, here's my confession. Not necessarily a confession of shame and guilt, but a confession of what is true. Your confession might look different than mine, might be a little bit wordier than yours, and I had a little more time to prep mine than I'm giving you in this very moment. But your confession might be, God, I, I want to confess. And you want to write that down. I want to confess that today I don't feel like I'm going to be a great mom. I want to confess that my kids are going to demand things of me that I'm not sure I'm ready to give. I want to confess that I feel I'm ready to become incredibly impatient and lose my mind in this parenting role. But I want to confess that you've called me to something greater. I want to confess that you have sent Christ to die for me as an example of unconditional love, and I want to confess that I need your help today to live in that space. Your confession might be about your relationship with your employer, your employee, your boss, your co-workers. Your confession may be around what you think is true about how God would, would work within that space. A simple confession, a writing down of God, this is what I confess is true today that you have loved us all, that you have created us all, you put us here, you've put me here to work. God, I confess that today I don't want to go to work. God, I want to confess to you that today I feel like being lazy. I want to confess to you that I'm not sure I'm ready to give to anybody today. I want to confess to you that I have blind spots. I'm depressed, I'm short uh, with people, I'm, I'm critical of people today, and I want to confess that I feel that. But I want to ask for your grace. I want to confess that I need your spirit to guide me and strengthen me today. I don't know what your confession will look like, but I want to encourage you to start your days this week and see what happens to your heart. To start your days with a brief confession. Again, not of deep shame and guilt, unless God moves in that space for you, but a confession of what is true. God, this is true. This is the world and the truth you want me to live in. I have one final confession to make. I want to confess that I love being married to my wife. I love that. That is true. I want to confess to you that I am grateful that I have the basis of love in my marriage to fall back on for all the times when I'm selfish and for all the times when I am impatient and all the times when my stress turns me inward and I become more critical and even more introverted than I naturally am. I confess what is true, that I'm grateful for a love relationship where I can walk with fits and starts, up and down with Jen. The love that she has for me is a small model of the love that our Heavenly Father has for me. And so friends, I wanna encourage you to confess on the basis of the love that God has for you, to confess what can and should be true about how you live with your fellow brother, with your fellow sister, and with the world around you. That God can move us stronger together and stronger in a relationship with him. Next week we'll continue Nehemiah's prayer. as He finishes that opening section, learning more about what it means to relate to a stronger God. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your for your word, for the chance to step in to see a tool, even this morning, that we often run by and don't like to use because it can create shame and guilt for us. I pray that you would help us to see and understand confession as the gift it is a confession or a noting of what is true and right. And so I pray that you would help us even this week to consider what is our confession of the week? What is our confession of this day? as we look at the responsibilities we have at work with our spouses, with our children, with our teachers, with our friends. Even if it's just a moment, a a sentence or two, I pray that you would give us the words to confess something that is true that we can find your grace in and we can find grace to give to one another when we corporately fail one another and put a burden on community life because of our sin and our failures. So we pray that you would help us to to find one another again under the word of Christ, under the hope of the gospel. That the things that we disagree on are not nearly, not nearly that big. So Father, we confess your love for us and we confess that we need your help. To live out your love for you and with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.